preta pinta o mundo com seu tom que essa tua Bem-vindo, bienvenido, welcome to A Cor Negra. This podcast is a digital humanities project where we bring together scholars, activists, and artists in a transnational dialogue centering the perspectives and knowledge production of black women in the diaspora. Hashtag Cite Black Women. Alright guys, welcome back to episode four. Today our topic is going to be about women, race, and class. And before we uh, introduce our last interviewer for the semester, I just want to tell you guys about a really cool blog that Cedric introduced me to in the beginning of the semester. Um, it first appeared, what looks like, on November 18, 2011. So um, they've been doing a lot and have been staying up to date. I recently just found an article titled, The Brazilian State is Mainly Responsible for the Crimes Committed Against Blacks in the Country. National Commission of Truth on Black Slavery is to issue a report in December, I believe of this year on reparation findings. And uh, yeah, if you guys remember my first episode, one of my initial and, and still, <laughs> I'm a little sensitive because I've, I'm, I've just changed my research topics, but I'm really interested in truth and memory and um, truth commissions and specifically that there was, I believe in 2014-15, a commission created just for um, slavery and the findings of um, this untold story. And who heads this commission, his name is um, Umberto Adami who I reached out to, has been really kind about possibly doing research, but we'll see. You reached out to him by email? I did, I did. Just let him know um, that I'll be coming to Brazil this summer. But anyways, I'm going off course. Cedric, what's been one of the articles that's interested you um, since introducing it to me? Yeah, well, I use um, blackwomenofbrazil.co a lot just to send other people there to get some really basic um, ideas um, about clearing up misconceptions about Brazil. And so I like to send a lot of people there too because they, uh, the writers have a lot of articles that really sort of start with that premise about the stereotypes about black women in Brazil. And when you look at the blog, and I hope everybody goes to visit, you really get a sense um, that the authors of the blog are trying to, first of all, uh, talk about the presence of black women in Brazil and talk about everyday women, uh, women who are left out of a lot of conversations about um, academia and, and, and uh, intellectual conversations, political conversations, entertainment especially, and um, it's fascinating. But most recently, most recently, um, I just spent a lot of time keeping up with uh, the um, news and information surrounding the assassination of Marielle Franco. Um, and so I keep, I kind of, I usually keep a tab open um, with this website. So I, I think it's just a good idea that we make sure that we shout them out as a, um, you know, we, you know, we believe ex existing in the same uh, uh, digital humanity space, uh, you know, that we're also trying to contribute to. So we're going to, uh, you know, continue to follow that blog, but also maybe hopefully get a chance to speak with uh, uh, some of the creators of the content on there and have them on the show. The blog is in English, which, um, again, makes it especially useful for us here in the States to 
uh, reference it to other folks um, that don't speak Portuguese and um, that can get some critical information uh, that you know goes against the stereotypical information about Black life in Brazil. So I think it's a I think it's a great a great website. Yep, and you know speaking about the misconception of of women in certain communities, we wanted to end this podcast with a special interview with a colleague of ours who um, is a member of the Stone Center for Latin American Studies, is ABD, all but dissertation, and is right now a Fulbright Scholar in Bahia, Brazil. So I'm going to give you guys a quick introduction to who this fabulous student is. Her name is Vanessa Castaneda. Um, she got her bachelor's in anthropology and Latin American studies at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She worked as a Spanish medical interpreter for four years for a free clinic in Kannapolis, North Carolina. And she studied in Guadalajara, Mexico for the summer of 2006 and Salvador, Brazil for 12 months of 2007. Um, she completed her master's in Latin American and Caribbean studies at NYU in 2014. And during the summer of 2013, she obtained a summer tinker grant and carried out ethnographic research in Salvador, Brazil. Her master's thesis was titled Traditional as Political, the Quotidian Politics of Bayana's Giacarache. And she draws from her experience having worked with the Association of Bayana Giacarache and Bayana Street Vendors and examines this cultural politics of Afro-Bayan identity. So a lot of our conversation with her um, relates to her research and, and examining this cultural identity politics of Bayana Giacarache in Salvador. So we'll just dive into that conversation. like for you currently but we can start with um, why you are in beautiful Brazil to begin with what led you there and um, what's your work looking like now great um, well thank you very much first of all for inviting me on your podcast and thank you for actually putting the energy um, and commitment to creating this because I think it's really important um, and I'm honored to be the first PhD candidate <laughs> because yes. I do feel like yes. I don't have everything together yet, but this should definitely help me in, in developing my ideas. Um, well, yeah, my name is Vanessa Castaneda. I am first generation Mexican American. Uh, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, I, well, originally I wanted to be a doctor and join Doctors Without Borders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to volunteer all over the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so I wanted to learn Portuguese so that I could be a doctor in Brazil. So I applied for um, this scholarship for the exchange program at my uh, undergraduate institution, UNCC. Mm -hmm. um, and I got it and I went to Salvador. And I was, let me tell you, I was the only student that went to Salvador. The other students wanted to go to Florianopolis, which oh, is, you know, okay. yep. a beautiful right. island in the South. Because oh it's a beautiful island in the south. Mm. Um, I have then, been there. It is beautiful, but I would totally have chosen Bahia over Florida. Oh, absolutely. Any day. And <laughs> other students went to Curitiba. Um, mm. I do think that, I mean, I would probably think that some of the students uh, bought into the idea that Salvador was a, an unsafe place to be in mm -hmm. for uh, racial and socioeconomic reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I was the only one of my cohort to go there. But anyways, um, and when I got there, I realized that I just really liked more of the cultural 
um, mm -hmm. anthropological study than I did uh, medicinal. And so I decided to pursue anthropology mm -hmm. um, and Latin American studies. And I was supposed to be there for a semester and I ended up loving Salvador so much that I extended it for a year wow. during my undergraduate experience. Yeah. Um, and then when I did my master's at NYU, I um, went back to Bahia, back to Salvador for my master's thesis, mm -hmm. um, which had to do with the Bayanas Yacaraje, which I can talk about yeah, a little bit more. Um, but it, in the, who are these street vendors um, of Salvador, Bahia? And uh, if you want me to talk about my research more fully, I can give you like the whole scoop. But basically, they're the first... Um, street vendors in the history of the World Cup to be able to have given, to be able to have obtained permission to sell their typical local foods within the actual arena. Mm -hmm. um, and so they did a lot of protesting. And so I went and I uh, did anthropological and ethnographic research with them and wrote about all of that protesting that happened. Um, can, can I just I'm, clear something? Can I, I want to go back and fact check real quick. So you're from Charlotte proper or are you from like Kannapolis or Rock Hill? I am from just, Charlotte Proper. I'm just I checking. Like, no, I, let me tell, this is so <laughs> off topic, <laughs> but I am five minutes from downtown, okay. none of this uptown, whatever people, like they don't want to say downtown. I live right off Wilkinson Boulevard. Oh, I am from okay. Charlotte. I got it. I got just <laughs> checking. Okay. All these northerners, nothing against northerners, kind of, but all these northerners moving to Charlotte yeah. and like gentrifying and changing our city. But no, I am from Charlotte. Probably. When did your parents move to Charlotte? Um, let's see. They moved in 80, 80, 1980. And where, wow. where were they coming from? L.A., the second largest Mexican city in the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. That's a big move. Yeah. Yeah. Are, yeah. From are, one coast to the other. Would you describe them as southern now? Yes, I would. Yes, I didn't realize that I was a Southern Latina till I moved oh. to New York. Interesting. And then I was, yeah, that's when I realized, oh wow, I am a Southern Latina. I always thought I was Latina, and then in yeah. New York, everybody was like, oh yeah, you're so smiley, you're so nice, you say ma'am, you know, you say please and thank you, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I'm Southern too. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, do you think there's anything about growing up as a Mexican woman in um, in the southeast uh, in particular uh, to sort of the there's not a lot of information about Latinos in the southeast I grew up in mm -hmm. South Carolina and everybody who speaks Spanish is considered Mexican in the Carolinas especially because there are a lot of um, a lot of workers, immigrant workers, uh, people who work on, you know, in the land, mm -hmm. on the land there. Um, so there's just not a lot of information that people have. Did, did, did that uh, have an impact on you? And you said you were the first generation. Uh, I guess also moving to New York, too, with that. Yeah, and I know that New York is very different. Um, are you also the first to go to college? I am. I'm the first. Well, actually, my brother went to a community college, but mm -hmm. I'm the first to go to a four-year institution. And the first graduate, graduate student. That's, that's yes. My, neither one of my parents graduated high school. So, okay. Okay. Um, and then my brother, Pepe, went to a community college. Uh, but yeah, I'm the first one to get a four-year degree or more. Did you have a lot of support in high school? No, unfortunately. Um, I feel like 
I wish I would have had more support looking back because I had to figure it out a lot on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, of course, like my family couldn't really, mm-hmm. you know, my, like neither one of my parents went to school, first of all. But secondly, their their experience was all from Mexico. So mm-hmm. they didn't know what FAFSA was. They didn't. I didn't even know that schools had dorms. Like when I applied to UNCC, thank God I went to the school that was in my city because I didn't even know dorms were a thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was just very much like. Uh, kind of figuring it out as you go and totally. luckily I went to the public library that's why I really do support libraries because the public mm-hmm. library um, somebody helped me fill out my FAFSA for free um, and so that's where I was really able to kind of learn what financial aid was mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what a grant was versus a loan mm-hmm. and so I got that kind of help. Be interested to know um, how this experience um, with your parents migration and immigration you're growing up in the South, being the first, you know, one of the first people in your family to do this, how it, uh, maybe how it colors your experience as a researcher as well, once you start talking about your, your research. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I really do think it colors my experience a lot. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Well, if you do want to actually jump into what um, your research is, Bayanaji Akarashe, and what that, what that means, and um, if you fell into that even during your undergraduate years, um, I'd love to hear more about and, it. And break those those terms down, yeah, too, because no. we also want to make sure that folks, this Are, is accessible to anybody. Yes, you know, yes, right. non-Portuguese speakers, too. Perfect. Um, if I need to break something down um, further, just let me know, totally. sometimes I forget. Um, so I guess starting with my research, um, I so basically I am carrying out archival and ethnographic, which archival means going to the archives is more of a historical methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm sure y'all know that, but I don't know who no, is no, listening. No. Um, and then ethnographic, which means actually living or being amongst people and taking field notes and like engaging in conversation and like kind of experiencing quotidian everyday experiences. Um, and so I am working with the Bayanas Jacaraje and Bayana really means a woman from the state of Bahia. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the literal translation. Um, But kind of in the everyday vernacular, when you say Bayana, everybody, at least in Brazil, knows that Bayana is this typically older black woman um, that usually is a part of the Afro-Brazilian religion of Candomblé. Mm -hmm. Um, So either through some kind of priesthood position where she could be a maiji santo, which basically means priestess, or uh, she could be somebody that's involved in another kind of status. They have various different rankings. Um, Or she could also be involved by kind of supporting the actual, um, the heido, which means like the actual establishment of the religion um, through different ways, such as selling different food items that uh, originate or are used within the religion. Um, so Bayana's jacaraje would be those women who sell this food item called akaraje, mm-hmm. um, which originally is from West Africa, today Nigeria, present day Nigeria, um, but it originates from West Africa and it's a food that then also became a very important ceremonial food for the Orisha or the deity of Shango within the Afro-Brazilian religion of Candomblé. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially, um, you know, Brazil had legalized slavery until 1888. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I still think that Brazil has slavery, but in terms of legal slavery, it was until 1888. Um, and during the... Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Take I'm that asking, back. Sorry, I, I was going to go back in a sec, too. I wanted to Oh, okay, you yeah, can, sorry. Yeah, no, you can, you can expound on that. Yeah, this um, is what this is about. <laughs> and I, I wanted oh, to okay. talk about that, but I wanted to finish your thought before we, we go into I don't want her to finish meat. your thought. I want you to unpack that. Because uh, I think that's an important <laughs> thing, uh, oh, yeah. especially as I've experienced, you know, our Latin American Studies Department, which I think is considered one of the better ones, there's a, I think people have a, they, it seems that a lot of professors have a great satisfaction in saying the dates that slavery ended mm-hmm, in different mm-hmm, places. Mm-hmm. And I usually take issue with that because there's never really a conversation about what that actually means because they also associate the, the legalized uh, ending of slavery with, with the concept of freedom. And or it being historical. Mm-hmm. Or it being historical. Well, and so we, we've yeah. had, oh, there's certain things we can't say necessarily. <laughs> but um, there have been classes where we've sort of challenged it or at least asked to, them to, to explain what they mean by they've been free since 1888, especially mm-hmm, if people mm-hmm. don't feel freedom right now. Yeah. So has, what, what, did, what do you mean when you say it? When you, um, when you, yeah, when you say there's, you think there's still slavery? Yeah. Well, no, those are great questions. And I think that um, it's important to talk about this and especially in academia, especially when we're taught to like think critically and to question all of these like institutionalized or accepted historical marks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I still feel that there is slavery in Brazil and other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. Um, because even, for example, um, when I teach my intro to Latin American studies class, I found a photo from the 70s. Um, where you literally see the, uh, there's a number of men and they're mostly either Afro or um, indigenous men. Mm -hmm. And they have these ropes that are tied on their necks and then they're like tied to each other. And essentially what was going on, I think I found this in a newspaper article, but essentially what was going on is that this particular form of slavery, because I think there's different forms, um, was where people were being taken to different parts of the Amazon rainforest um, they were either told that they would be able to work and, you know, make X amount of money and then come back to their home. So these are very vulnerable populations, um, probably from rural uh, parts of the country or maybe from urban settings like in the uh, comunidades or the favelas, which is what people normally know these um, parts of town as. Yeah. Um, I know which photo you're talking about. I, I, I'm almost certain because I was um, reading what I was originally trying to study upon coming to, to Tulane was looking at truth commissions, the, the truth commission formed in Brazil, and um, they, a, truth, a local truth commission in Rio um, was looking at the racial residue within these, um, within the dictatorship. And that photo stuck out to me for sure. It is, you have a patrol officer too in the back, and then yes. lined up men, so. And we, we actually, one of our classes, we kind of, discuss some of the, the problems with at least the, the sort of the interpretation of these historical moments. We're talking about um, some, the, some the landowner history in, um, in Cachoeira. And even some of the students who didn't really have, have a deep understanding of it were like, this sounds like sharecropping, which is really kind of another form of slavery. Mm-hmm. And it 
it was sort of explained away in a, in a different type of way. So there's a resistance to, there's a, not a resistance, there's a temptation, a very seductive temptation, which I think is part of the, um, you know, a, a liberal idea to say, no, slave, we're, we're beyond slavery, mm -hmm. you know, as a Western society. So mm -hmm. it must be something else. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 And and also because it's not like like you were just saying, it's not backed by law. So now people are like, okay, if it's not actually backed by law, it's something different. Or if it's not like accepted at, under that notion of slavery, it can't be like if it's not the same way that it used to be a hundred years ago, then it has to be something else. But there's also like obviously like evolution that's going on and like although it's not the same exact um like cat what is it uh cattle slavery what is chattel that word? slavery yeah. chattel slavery although it's not like this chattel slavery that can that used to exist 150 years ago under brazilian law mm -hmm. there's still a form of actual state sanctioned um hierarchy that tar continues to target um particularly black bodies in ways that do not allow for social ascension. Um, and so that's still like a form of state controlled slavery that isn't completely based on the body in the same way that it used to be, you the know? The question of freedom and silencing citizenship and yes, the, your, your rights, your right. different rights. And this obviously is something that is, is everywhere. So this is just one example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's that. So, what what is it about uh, the Bayanis de, de Carajé yeah. that you? What what did you find in your research? What was that? What was your experience? Um, is your experience? Yeah. So um, hold on. Right before I go back to the Bayanis, I do want to mention one thing. Um, so right now I'm currently looking at sources at Bahia Tursa, which um, is the state-sponsored tourism company of Bahia. And I'm looking at all these different newspaper articles, and it's very unorganized right now. They don't have a catalog system, so I'm just kind of like haphazardly looking through things. But it was interesting because I saw some newspaper articles um, from maybe 10 years ago, I can't remember, um, that were that was talking about the fact that there was still slavery happening in Salvador. And I think it was particularly looking at like the urban quilombos mm -hmm. and all of the comunidades and what legal obstacles were still in place and how there was still a lot of wage theft and how this was discriminately, um, you know, affecting black people, particularly poor black people of Salvador. Mm -hmm. um, but it was still something that there were several different articles written. And I, did, I don't think I took photos of all of them just because, um, of course, I, I think it's interesting, but I'm kind of like, OK, I have to like make sure that I'm really focusing on the Bayanas. Um, but it was like there were several different articles that were that were being written on this very subject. So it's still it's something that people do realize, like a lot of people think that, you know, this isn't something that Afro-Brazilians are talking about. This isn't something that people in Salvador are talking about. This is like some you know academics who are coming here and like trying to militarize people or trying to divide people based on race but that's totally not true um all of these articles were written by brazilians and although i don't know the race of the journalists um it was still clear that they were talking about it in racial terms mm -hmm. um and like i said this these were articles that were written less than 10 years ago so it is something that and it's i mean 
you know, it's kind of like when people talk about the Haitian Revolution and how, you know, the French Revolution really influenced all of the Haitians to take arms and rise up. <laughs> That's bullshit. <laughs> like, of That's course, like, bullshit. perhaps it was it was uh, influential in terms of like, I don't know, knowing that this was happening in other times, but it wasn't like Haitian, or I'm sorry, it wasn't like uh, African enslaved people were passive this entire time. There were already uprisings occurring, you know? Mm -hmm. And they didn't need white people to tell them, oh, guess what? Like, you know, you can fight for your freedom and like kill other white people. Of course, mm -hmm. that's such bullshit. Mm -hmm. But anyways, so I just wanted to add that this is something that definitely is on the conversation here in Salvador. Well, I mean, you, you touched on something I'd like to just ask you really quickly to, um, to sort of clarify your perspective because I think that it's not necessarily a, um, a, a, a default perspective for a lot of people, which is you've already identified that the, you know, the particular group of people that you are, you are observing and in community with are black women. So somebody who might be hearing this for the first time and interested in Brazil mm -hmm. might ask the question, I, I, I thought there was really only one race in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brazilian, I guess. Mm-hmm. So mm -hmm. Obviously that's not how you feel, but what is that something you've always thought or did you have to learn that? What is you know, what was your process for even understanding about how race exists in Brazil and, and how it exists as a factor in okay, like, that's, people's, people's lives? That's a good question. Um, I think the way that I came to understand race in Brazil and that I'm still like understanding because I think that when we talk about race and racial identity and the concept of race, it's not something that is static or fixed. You know, I think it's very fluid. I think it has to do a lot with the historical moment. I think it has to do a lot with transnational movements, um, also with like different bodies, like my body in the U.S. and how... I read myself racially and how other people read me racially versus my body here in Bahia and how I read myself in comparison to w the realities of everyday Bahians and how they read me. So I'm still obviously like learning and unlearning and um, what seeing have been some of those uh, those differences. If you how, can know how does it any, feel to be white? I'm really curious. And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, that is a yes. That's a great question because you know in in the u.s i feel like i'm latina or i'm brown you know mm -hmm. um and i feel like here in salvador it's it's very interesting because some people do call me morena and i think it depends a lot on the age group mm -hmm. i think um especially uh cedric when you mentioned like i usually work with black women i also usually work with older black women and i think that's mm -hmm. important because um i do think that there is a different not entirely because i don't want to generalize but i do think that there's a different generational understanding of how people talk about race. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the Bayan women that I work with are usually over 50 years old. Um, and a lot of them will call me Morena or, um, yeah, they'll just usually call me Morena. Sometimes they'll call me Negra, but I think it's out of affection. I think it's kind of like a term of endearment. I don't really think they think I'm black. Mm -hmm. um, but I have been called white by a few people and I'm just like, no, 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 oh. I'm not white. <laughs> and they're just like, no, you're white. You're just tan. And I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not white. Like, but do you but, think the general assumption when you're when you're walking around is that you are a white uh, Brazilian or. Um, maybe uh, I don't I don't 
feel like people generally see me as white. Mm -hmm. um, but I really don't know because, I mean, maybe some, maybe most of the Bayans could, but I feel like 90% of the time, whenever I ask somebody what race they think I am, they'll usually say like, ah, você está muito misturado. Oh, sorry. No, you can. You're, uh, they'll usually <laughs> say like um, that I'm very mixed. And they'll usually say, like, I can tell that you have a lot of different, like, ethnicities or races. Mm -hmm. And they'll usually say morena. They'll usually say, like, I don't think you're, like, white, white. Yeah, which definitely is a privileged, I would say, a privileged identity that I'm mm -hmm. ascribed to. Mm -hmm. But I will say one thing that I have found very interesting in my experience in terms of, like, my racial reading is that a lot of people in Bahia, a lot always comment on my indigenous features. And mm. in the U.S., oh, I'm no. never read as indigenous, ever. Yeah. Um, right. Especially because when you look at other Mexicans or other people from South America or Peru or whatever who have much stronger features, mm. I am definitely seen as more of a mestiza. But here in Salvador, I feel like because there's much more Afro-Brazilian, like the demography of Afro-Brazilians is much stronger, um, and there aren't very many um, indigenous people in the city of Salvador, I then become very indigenous in a lot of people's eyes, particularly mm -hmm. in a lot of black Brazilians. Black like Brazilians. They, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. How do a lot so, of the younger um, generation Afro-Brazilians in Bahia classify themselves? Like, would they say Bahartu, which is, you know, more round skinned, as, or is there that more like, you know, yeah, souls? That's a Pandora's box right there. <laughs> The solidified like negra, like I'm black. Well, in my experience, um, a lot of the younger generation, and I'm talking about like undergraduate, like, mm -hmm. you know, teenage to mid or late 20s. Um, I've never heard people uh, classify themselves as pardo. Mm -hmm. um, I've met a lot of uh, light skinned, uh, what I would read as light skinned black Brazilians mm -hmm. who do classify themselves as black. Mm -hmm. um, I think that has to do a lot with the fact that now there is much more of, um, how, see, sometimes I forget how to say it in, in, in English, like yeah. asumid. Yeah, like now there are a lot more uh, Brazilians who, despite what their actual color may be mm -hmm. um, within like the colorism scheme, they're identifying as black, even if they could be very light skinned. Um, I know that that was less the case when I was here 10 years ago or 11 years ago during my undergraduate um, experience. Now I see that that's different. I think that like somebody was actually somebody in Tulane and uh, two professors here were telling me we're we're all saying the same thing that it seems like now in Brazil or at least in Salvador, but also, also other parts of Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, people are doing what the U.S. was doing and, you know, kind of following, like, if you have any ancestry of Afro blood, mm -hmm. you're identifying more as black. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting now because I feel like in the U.S. we've been such a, like, a binary culture when we think of race. And now we have brown. Like, now people mm -hmm. are saying, like, I'm brown or I'm a person of color. Mm -hmm. And so the black and white dichotomy is beginning to, like, be more nuanced because now people can say, like, I'm not, I'm, like, for example, I say I'm a non-black person of color. Mm -hmm. um, even though I do actually have a great, great grandfather who um, was Afro-Mexican, who was black, but I just mm -hmm. found that out. Wow. And I feel like I've never been raised to like 
feel that I'm black and I also feel like nobody reads me as black mm -hmm. so I don't want to identify with a black experience that I feel I've never had to experience and which has been a privilege ultimately you, you know? don't want a racial mm -hmm. dollars all it yeah exactly <laughs> like I just found that out and somebody was like then why don't you identify as black and I was like well you know I, I feel like it would be disrespectful because I've never grown up being mm -hmm. treated as a black person. I've never grown up feeling like a black person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I feel like, I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. And so, so I do think that like, it is, it's important for people to be conscious also. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like in the U.S. we have a lot of, we have a lot of autonomy when it comes to self-identification that we sometimes forget the privilege of the way that you're read to other people. Um, and I want to always be conscious of that because like, like what you said, Cedric, like being called morena, is a privilege like mm -hmm. i know that morena is usually associated to like this you know mixing that has been um also associated with standardized beauty mm -hmm. you know like i can mm -hmm. be read mm -hmm. as like one of those kind of mulata-esque people and i know that that's a privilege you know especially in brazil which puts a lot of emphasis not just brazil the us too but there you know puts a lot of emphasis on this aesthetic beauty right. um do you think anyways, it makes you feel yeah. safer as uh, a woman and a foreigner there uh, to, I mean, I don't know, I know you probably have this experience where you're, you, you know, you may be assumed to be from there at times until like somebody sees something about you or hears something in your voice that lets them know that you're from out of town. Um, but, well, why don't you ask the question? Because we, we yeah, did want to talk on. about, um, I feel stupid asking yeah, a question about like big, like your experience as a woman. You ask. Well, <laughs> we do, do want to hear because um, we're skipping all over the place. I but know it's, good. it's a little scattered, yeah. but um, even collecting um, resources. I know you you work mainly with um, Bayanas and older Afro-Brazilian women, but um, yeah, I guess just like. Your experience as a woman in in Brazil and what that likes what that what's that like and also um, if you notice any distinctions between that sort of um, engagement in Brazil versus in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I usually am read as Brazilian. Um, usually, if I don't talk too much and people can hear that I have an accent, people automatically think. I'm Brazilian. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that that's a privilege for me as a researcher. Um, or, or I mean, as a person in Brazil, because then usually I'm not going to be like an immediate target um, when it comes to like giving me a higher price, you know, for certain things because mm -hmm. I'm not automatically associated as a tourist. Right. Um, so I think that it's a privilege in that sense. I think it's a privilege in that I am able to like roam freely without people like taking too much notice. But when it comes to like, I mean, it's, I guess it's like, it's different because it's like many levels because also like, I feel like the cat calling here is, you know, really strong, really ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, in terms of like me as a woman and my worth as a sexual object, I feel like that's a constant thing that's always being thrown in my face. Like I'm always reminded of how I'm read as a sexual object to many people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also happens in the US, you know, I'm not trying to say this is only a Brazilian phenomenon, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it's something that people feel really comfortable saying certain things to you and sometimes grabbing you. And I think it really depends also on kind of like the environment 
Because in Carnival, it was like all rules were kind of thrown out the window. You know, like men would just like grab my arm like with force and, you know, just tell me all kinds of stuff um, or try to kiss me or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because I saw that in during Carnival, there were billboards, there were signs, there were commercials mm-hmm. constantly telling people, you need to ask for consent. You cannot grab women. Huge um, campaigns. You, huge campaigns. Huge recently, campaigns. Yeah. Huge campaigns. They were like, we were walking and people were giving us like these little um, t- temporary tattoos. It's like, no wow. means no. Yeah. Like, um, How like, new is this phenomenon? When I, well, Cedric, you might know too, but when I asked my friends, they were saying that this has been going on for at least five years or so. Okay. Yeah, that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. But they were saying that it, like men aren't, like they're disregarding it because like, you know, the culture of mm-hmm. of having carnival be like the moment where you just kind of mm-hmm. everything just everything is fine, like nothing really matters, like rules don't apply, is just so entrenched. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like people have been doing this in many different ways. Like it's okay for men to quote unquote cross dress, to wear, mm-hmm. you know, whatever they want and like nobody's gonna think that you're gay and like you can and that for that day or for that week, whatever, it's okay for you to like embody this like trans persona you know but in all the other days of the year you know like there's a lot of transphobia and you you would never be caught like doing those kind of feminine things that's the funny thing like uh what's the what's the one uh blocko mukaleki muleki i always mess that up oh muleki i don't know it well there's a there's a cross-dressing blocko and um i know what you're talking about like they might be geishas one day they might be I don't know. My they were Carmen group. Miranda this year. <laughs> Carmen Miranda, yeah. And but they're mm-hmm. all like huge guys because yep. like a lot of them are policemen. Oh. And whoa. which is so bizarre because the power yep. dynamic there's on yes. another level because they police can kind of do what they want anyway in Brazil. Yes. Right. And right. it's just it's really in, it's I would say interesting if it wasn't so dangerous um, to observe because it's it's carnival. Men can kind of already do what they want, like you're describing. And then there's this thing where there there's a a sex there's a, a sexual even a I think a gender sort of inversion too. Like well, inversion. Yeah, yeah, but it seems to in some way boost the the worst of the masculine and paternal tendencies. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it, you some, said it. In some way, like mm-hmm. it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of a twilight zone type of thing. And I've you, seen them abuse power. Mm-hmm. You reminded me when, um, I think wow. it's the same bloco, I'm not sure, but if it's the same bloco, it was just like what you said, it was all men, all mm-hmm. like very hyper-masculine in really good shape, mm-hmm. big, you know, um, and they were wearing like the whole Carmen Miranda thing where they had the skirts and like mm-hmm. the fruit on the head. But you know what was so fascinating to me is that they all had water guns. And yes, this is the same so, one. Oh, wow. Yes. Water guns. And so that, they're police. They're nice. all like, and it was like, it was like, what the fuck is going on? I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to cut. No. Because these extremely hyper masculine men mm-hmm. are now dressed as women. So they're like trying to embody this like feminine aspect, but they have these water guns. And so they're still going to like assert their authority in a way that mimics violence. That is still violent. Right. And they were just like shooting at people. Oh yeah. Um, let me kids, give, boys, girls. Let me, let, me give, let me give you a really a really good example. And I think this was probably my first one. 
and first one I experienced in 2011, but I've seen it every time. So then we get back to the interview. So, yeah. so you, you see these guys, and the thing is, if it were any other week of the year, mm -hmm. uh, an actual uh, queer, transgender, you know, uh, person who would want to, you know, live in looking like this type of way, they would receive violence, twist them. Like they're, right. they're in danger right. all the time. Right. Um, but these men have no, they have no fear. They almost, they, they, yes. they, they seem to express a little bit of like freedom too, which is, you know, not a surprise, right, for some people. But one typical thing might happen. So if we're together and we're walking and trying to enjoy carnival, I don't, we can have kids with us, it doesn't matter. They might, well, I've seen this several times, so they shoot the water gun at the guy, but shoot it like right in his pants area to make it look like he peed in himself. Mm -hmm. And then like, up dare the guy to do something because they also roam in packs. Mm -hmm. And so, because it's still the point of the game, so to speak, it's still to get the attention or, the, or take the physical attention and affection from the women. So it's kind of like punking the guy and mm. um and looking like the bigger man mm -hmm. but all of this in like a tutu mm -hmm. busting out Such and then like some of them actually look really pretty but then there are others who are like are a mess like <laughs> am i right am i wrong no you're right and, and, and one, one last thing is another kind of thing maybe you saw i hate to just focus on them because they they, they really are a, a menace i don't i don't like this blocko because mm -hmm. i don't really see them doing anything good but there's mm -hmm. one really interesting thing. Those of them who have partners or spouses or wives or mm -hmm. girlfriends, mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll see them helping them with their makeup and wigs oh in the God. middle of carnival, Great. which is it's just another. That's yeah. fascinating. That's another element. <laughs> That's fascinating. Sorry, I didn't. We might cut that out, but <laughs> no. But it it reinscribes like gender roles because it it like kind of reaffirms the fact that you're supposed to be this hypermasculine man mm -hmm. and. Like carnival is a moment where you're okay to be ridiculous and to embody something that is totally not okay. But then after that, like remember, never again are you allowed to have these feminine traits or like think about wearing a tutu or whatever, right. you know. And it like it just reaffirms that hyper toxic paternal masculinity. And, and just like in the United States, I think there are things, there are sort of social events that uh, are dedicated to one time of the year, but they really sort of it's almost a, a performance Absolutely. that sort of represents really what goes Carnivalous. on through, throughout yeah. the year, yeah. like the values throughout the year, which would be violence and, right. um, you know, violence through, through the use of guns and authority and uh, sexism and all those things. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it, 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 do you feel like your experiences, uh, this being one example, on, on the ground for more than a week or more than a vacation period sort of spoil people's point of view of Brazil like that haven't been or that want to believe as, as a paradise? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because people do think, like, you know, the whole rhetoric that the U.S. Um, likes to advertise and that Brazil, to an extent, likes to advertise as well, mm -hmm. um, is that Brazil is a racial paradise. It's a place... And also it's like a place for you to really be able to fulfill your desires, you know, mm -hmm. like come to Brazil, um, come, everything is for your consumption, you know, like mm -hmm. the beaches are for you to like 
be fulfilled with like pleasurable moments under the sun, drinking your coconut water. The people too, particularly the black women, um, all these bodies are meant for your consumption and for your desire, you know? Yeah. And so that's why like if you've read, um, what is her what is her book? Uh, Erica Afro Lorraine Paradise. Williams? Yep. Oh, well, Erica, Erica oh, Lorraine Williams, oh, yeah, um, Sex Tourism in sex Brazil. Tourism in Brazil, yeah. And, you know, she talks about that, too, because uh, Bahia has one of the highest sex tourism here. And um, and me just doing like my archival research at Bahia Tursa. Um, I don't I think, Cedric, you saw my Instagram story, but I saw this um, this tourist magazine cover. And it was literally a magazine cover from 1976. Mm -hmm. And there's not even a woman on this cover. There's a breast like her yes. face has been Jeez. cropped out. And it's just kind of like you can see one side of her body and you can see her breast exposed. Yeah. And then she has all these necklaces that are supposed to be, I think, Afro, but I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not exactly sure if it's mm -hmm. indigenous or African, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be read as African um, traditional jewelry. Mm -hmm. um, and then it says in there, like, you know, Bahia, the sensual land of magicalness, mm -hmm. or I can't remember what it was, what it said, but it's, you know, it's this whole idea of like, come to come to Salvador, um, and this is the land where, kind of like Carnival, this is the land where, like, rules don't apply. Like, you right. come here and right. you really just allow yourself to be fulfilled in all of your desires, whether that has to do with the music, the food, the beaches, or the people, yeah. Um, yeah. you know? And so a lot of my friends, even, um, that haven't really engaged with this critically, they come here and they think, like, oh, everybody is so beautiful because everybody's so mixed and, like, everybody's happy and... Um, this is like just so magical and this is like a paradise and you know I'm not okay with them like falling into this because right. this, is, this is very like a very tactful strategic right. discourse right. that is sold to people not only outside of Brazil but even in the south of Brazil right mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and so talking about the fact that like of course but like do you know what's going on in Gamboa which you know is the Comunidade that Keisha Camperi writes about, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that was actually just on the news a couple of days ago because all of their water in that Comunidade is contaminated. Um, and but it's right beside some of the most shiki, some of the most expensive uh, buildings and beaches, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to like very conveniently turn away from those realities and fall into that discourse of paradise. Um, that's definitely like a bubble that I burst. But even the violence is sexy to a lot of people as well. I mean, the violence especially, I mean, uh, I, I know that there have been tours of uh, favelas the favelas. Right. There is uh, attraction to the aesthetics and the stories around the city of God. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in tourism in general, the idea of being free and liberated in a country where there's a an authoritative control over the the pop the population in general is mm -hmm. also attractive too right. um, well I was also mm -hmm. curious of how um, if the tourism of the Bayana women have changed for you too like how you first perceive them because mm -hmm. there is this this culture, this livelihood, this history of them, but they're also used in a sense too by. Um, yeah, the how did, how, yeah, I'm curious about that too. This this idea of the frozen history, mm -hmm. you know, the 
we we understand that the the garb is is from condom blade in general. Mm-hmm. There is a there there it's it's in and amongst, especially in places like Pellerino in the city center, there mm-hmm. it is in and amongst a a really large aesthetic of slave times, essentially colonial times. Um, and I think that's attractive to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's a really good question. Um, it's a very complicated question for me, though, yeah. um, because when I first arrived to Bahia, particularly this trip, mm-hmm. I very much had um, the sense that I think like this is something that I will call out some U.S. academics for. I feel like a lot of times people like to just kind of perceive the world in uh, in a binary fashion where you have the oppressors and you have the victims. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like I I wanted to uh, really kind of take my direction, take my research in that direction where I did see the Bayanas as victims mm-hmm. of like what you just said of mm-hmm. the tourism industry mm-hmm. and kind of controlling um, what aesthetic mm-hmm. and what symbol, what, um, yeah, like what they are supposed to symbolize mm-hmm. um, and for them to be kind of this consumption for tourists. And I still think that that in many ways stands true. I still think that obviously if I'm going to be talking about like uh, structural power dynamics, most of the black Brazilian women that I work with that are Bayana Jacaraje street vendors are from a low socioeconomic status. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of them might not have formal education. Um, a lot of them are single mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that in terms of speaking about it in a structural sense, like, yes, they are the victims in many ways, and they aren't given a social, this kind of social mobility that other people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, this is something that Juan Jose Hayes, who is my host uh, country advisor, Lucky you know, you. he... I am extremely lucky. I'm oh, very you didn't mention that you were doing a Fulbright. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. You're, yeah, you're trying to, you know, be modest. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm doing a Fulbright. <laughs> Congratulations um, again. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, next time, you're going to be here on the Fulbright, Cedric. Yeah, oh, I hope yeah. so. I hope yes, so. you are. But anyways, um, and he brought to my attention that this is very much um, something that, it's, a, it's very much a pattern that, is very true, but is also very simplistic. Mm-hmm. And when I speak about the Bayana's experiences in that way, I am totally trivializing what I originally thought I was wanting to talk about, which is their political on the ground organizing and them as actual agents of their own lives and destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I must talk about the fact that like, it's not that simple and mm-hmm. that particularly if I'm gonna be looking at other actors, like when I'm, when I'm gonna be looking at um, the fact that now religion and um, Pentecostalism and evangelicals who have really started to become formal politicians in formal politics, like at the city council level, you know, there's right now a presidential nominee who is extremely right-wing, extremely evangelical. Um, When I look at kind of what's been going on in terms of religious intolerance, Bayanas then have also, as particularly in the association where I do my research, have also really tried to standardize and regulate that Bayanas continue to wear these garb, mm-hmm. this attire, mm-hmm. because there is now a movement happening where uh, vendors, 
that are radical evangelicals, because I don't want to say all vendors that are evangelical are like this. These are the radical evangelicals who want to completely disassociate the craft and the livelihood and the food's religious ties to candomblé mm. and co-opt it in a very sanitized Christian manner mm. and even rename the food, so rename the acarajé as Bolinho de Jesus, which means Jesus cakes. Mm. Um, and they're, so they're, they're, they're there. Like, what percentage would you I see more and more every time I go. What percentage would you say of the active vendors outside of the neighborhoods in the tourist centers are evangelicals versus, I'm not going to assume everybody's in the condomblé, but, you know, mm-hmm. versus people associated with the condomblé. Like, would you say that there's a, do you think there's a trend? Do you think that there's sort of a, Static percentage? What, what would you say about that? Um, I would say in the tourist areas, there aren't as many, at least there aren't as many open evangelical vendors because now the Association of Bayanas have been very active in trying to redeem their rights as portraying this craft Um to its origins, which have to do with Candomblé. So the tourist regions like Pelorino, like Bonfim, like uh, even Baja, Mm -hmm. um, those areas are now, most of the people there are going to be wearing the attire. Most of them are not going to be calling the Acaraje Bolinho de Jesus. It's actually happening more in the... It's like the opposite. Like the Mm -hmm. comunidades, yeah. Yeah, so because all of the the Acaraje vendors in my neighborhood are evangelical. That's yeah, and you are in Libertad, right? Well, I'm on the, the border of Libertad and La Pina. But yeah, obviously in Libertad there are a couple and then like right in front of our apartment building. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's interesting because now the like it's not so easy to kind of to kind of blame like, oh, you know, the state is repressive and these poor bayanas. Like the state is repressive. Like I'm not trying to deny that. Right. Um but I'm also gonna like actually think critically and mm-hmm. add some nuance and mm-hmm. say, see that, well, the Association of Bayanas, because, you know, they have organized on the ground and they've done a lot and they've been in city council meetings and they have marched over to all these different offices. They've also been able to actually implement different decrees and different like municipal decrees and different legislations to be able to empower the Bayanas associated with Candomblé. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. other actors at play. There's other mm-hmm. things that are going on. Um, and then something that Juan pointed out are, I mean, these are exceptional cases, but there are also Bayanas who really have been able to make it big. You know, if we look at Eugenia, if we look at Sida, um, Tanya, and for example, Sida has an apartment in um, Vitoria, which is the most expensive neighborhood in Bahia. And these are probably like, I haven't looked a lot into these cases, but obviously these are more of the exceptional cases. This isn't the everyday reality of the Bayanas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, but it does show that I can't, I can't oversimplify everything right. Um, right. the way that I originally was doing it. Right. Another thing too is that, especially with the tourism industry, which I, especially like all the investment that's been going on by the state within the tourism industry, that is very problematic, um, that has reduced a lot of these people as like what you were saying, Cedric, as like frozen emblems of the past, Mm -hmm. um, living museums. Another um, thing that's been happening is that it's also allowed for poor people, especially like these poor black women, 
mm-hmm. to develop a livelihood, to be able to get a tabuleiro and be able to sell a carajé, you know, like now there's more of a demand. There yeah. are more tourists, there are more people, uh, Bahians in general, who want to eat a carajé as a local everyday kind of food item. So with the dissemination of this image also comes more, you know, opportunities for poor people to actually have their own livelihood and and make their own kind of money. Yeah. So that's something that a lot of the Bayanas talk to me about. You know, they say like the tourism industry can be very problematic, but also they have they acknowledge the fact that a lot of people were able to aut- be- gain autonomous uh, gain autonomy. You know. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that they, a lot of them are single mothers. What are the realities for their their children? Is it more like, okay, how do we preserve these customs and traditions, but also allow there to be you know opportunity for them to 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 be the person, the people that they want to be? Um, yes, that's a a good question. Um, I think that being a Bayana Jacaraje traditionally was something that was a knowledge that was transmitted um, from generation to generation. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it still happens, but like I said, a lot of Bayanas, because they're poor, decided to go ahead and learn how to make a carajé and start selling it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, even though the state likes to still spew this discourse that, oh, this has been going on from the times of, from the times of slavery, mm-hmm. and it's always passed down to the next generation, and like, always like the mother tells the daughter how to make the akaraje and it's a family secret and you know this is all such a beautiful romanticized and nostalgic idea mm-hmm. of like continuing to pass out traditions particularly like black women seen as having some kind of like magical talent mm-hmm. in making delicious foods you know which stems from you know times of slavery where you had the black cook right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um <laughs> but that's not entirely the case anymore. There are some women who did learn from their mothers and their grandmothers, um, but there are some women who don't want to learn because they don't have any interest in being a vendor. Um, You have boys now, you have sons Mm -hmm. who want to learn, which is also another contentious issue. Some people are okay with men now beginning to sell and some people are not okay Mm -hmm. um, because in Candomblé, men usually aren't the ones that are preparing the foods, you know? Um, or because it's usually been a gendered activity. Um, So that's another kind of contention there. Um, And what I kind of see from a lot of the mothers, from a lot of the mothers that I work with, is kind of like what you see in the U.S. when you have a poor, uh, when you have a, you know, a poor family or an immigrant family, they want what's best for their kid. So that might mean then that's, they might have to, you know, study and forget the tradition of selling the akaraje. Um, you know, my parents are both farmers, mm-hmm. and they really wanted me to, quote-unquote, do better. Um, so they really wanted me to go to school and, mm-hmm. you know, become a, quote-unquote, professional. Um, and so a lot of the... They didn't down the tradition of farming to you? So you they didn't. preserve it? They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> what, kind of, you know, I, what kind of farming did they do? Um, I don't know. My okay. My... my dad's mom had 14 kids and my mom's mom had eight so all i know is they had a bunch of corn and animals do, do, did you do you see do you are are, are you do you see a, a parallel yeah do you see a parallel uh between um what you know about your family's history in la and before that in mexico as far as like 
you know, having these, you know, sort of existing within these different, so these different economies, especially the ones that sort of involve women cooking things for workers, for working class people on the street. Um, uh, did, did you see any parallel to that? Not maybe not your family, but like your your communities or hmm. their communities. That's a really good question. Um, I feel like, huh. I mean, at least when it comes to like Mexican culture mm -hmm. and thinking about kind of my families, um, women are usually the cooks. Women are usually the ones that are, that are going to be in the kitchen. Um, and it's usually more of a communal activity when we think about like tamales, for example, and how long that takes. Mm -hmm. um, you need a lot of hands in the kitchen. And so at the same time, it's like this gendered activity, but it's also a time for really community building. Um, and I, I mean, I can see like the parallels of like how that preparation is made by the hands of women um, and sold. Well, I don't know. I don't have anybody in like my family that really sells food. Like there's no vendors, street vendors in my family. But um, your family, you, you, they've probably bought food because, you know, I, it's funny how California and LA can have such an immigrant population that you see, I mean, there's street vendors all over the United States, but particularly the, the ones that really cook food, um, it's a great skill to have mm -hmm. because it's a way to make money and you see this all over, mm -hmm. all over the world really. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering if you, if you had observed any sort of parallels or studied any, any parallels uh, I haven't really studied a lot of the street vending um, context outside of Brazil. Okay. Um, it, like you said, I think that it is a phenomenon, especially like I think in Latin America, like that's also like a huge selling point for tourism. Mm -hmm. You know, like oh, you know, when you go to like Peru or when you go to Mexico, there's you, you have to eat the tacos on the street. The world. Yeah, it's true. Like, though, but yeah, it is true though. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. Um, but I. But I've noticed that if you go to a lot of blogs of people like tour, uh, touring Latin America, there's always an emphasis on the you're street. Not, you're not still reading those, are you? Hey, for my research, I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we don't want to eat up any more of your time. We just had uh, one last question. If you could just give any comments or thoughts on um, the recent assassination of Maria de Franco and um, what the political climate and the, the gatherings or organizations have been like since her passing and this sense of um, activism and, and progress and um, what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, I was, so when Mariel Franco was assassinated, um, it was, I think, the third day of the World Social Forum, which took place here in Salvador. Um, and so basically the World Social Forum is this large event where you have different social movements from all over the world come in talk about various different issues that they're experiencing. And some of them are diasporic and some mm -hmm. of them are, you know, whatever. Um, and you have workshops and all these other activities. So I remember that I woke up and I was reading my emails because I tried to like read the, the very simplified version of the news. So I mm -hmm. kind of know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it talked about Franco's ass uh, assassination in Rio. Mm -hmm. And I had seen videos of her like, just being very outspoken about the military police and particularly of the military um, intervention that's happening right now in Rio. Mm -hmm. 
So I knew who she was, but I didn't know a lot about her. Like, I didn't know that she was queer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when um, I read the news and I was like, oh, man, that's, that's so awful, um, particularly because it was so obvious that the reason she was targeted was because of the fact that she spoke against these systems of oppression, these, like, race, class, gender, and homophobic systems of oppression, right? Right. Um, And then when I went to the World Social Forum, I remember that the first, um, like, conversation or gathering that I went to had to do with candomblé communities. Mm -hmm. And so they had, like, a five-minute moment of silence for Mariel. They talked a lot about how this was truly an injustice for Brazil, truly an injustice for black people and for the candomblé community because although she didn't really talk about candomblé mm-hmm. directly, she empowered a lot of uh, marginalized people. And so mm-hmm. these priests that and priestesses that represented these different candomblé tejidos were inspired by her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went, I remember that um, I actually went to one of the stadiums. I don't know if it was that night or... I feel like it was that same night, or maybe it was the next night, and we got to see Lula speak. Um, and so before Lula wow. spoke, though, there were, I know it was, it was kind of incredible. No, yeah, it was yeah. incredible. <laughs> He's like Obama. He knows how to talk. Mm. Um, <laughs> that must have been like, wild. I mean, I'm yeah. Sure everybody was there that could Brazil fit. is in a, a, it's at a boiling point right now. We'll give more information yeah. on Lula in the mm. link section. Yes. Um, but even pr- before Lula spoke, there were um, people from all over the world. And I feel like almost everybody at least said something about the assassination of Franco. So mm-hmm. it was something that the world um, the world was focusing on and that the world knew was a, an intentional targeted assassination mm-hmm. for the injustices that are happening in Brazil and to silence and to instill fear on a community that's always been repressed and continues to be repressed. Um, Lula also spoke about Franco. Um, There's been several different marches here. Actually, there's one tonight. There's one this afternoon um, going out from Campo Grande. So it's definitely something that a lot of people are still talking about, Mm -hmm. are still manifesting, are protesting, um, are still protesting um, and trying to hold the government accountable, hold the fact, or hold the uh, military police accountable um, in Rio. Um, So there's a lot of, like what you just said, there's a lot of tension right now. I'm sure that even in Rio, which arguably might be worse, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of tension because of what's going on with Mariel and what's going on with Lula. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of people right now are just, it's a very contentious time um, in Brazil. And Cedric, you're going to be here soon, so you're going to be able to see as well. Yeah. Luciana just also posted on Facebook the event that you're talking about. Um, that, that, that will be happening. Equipe Maria Franco. There's um, on the 14th. Yep, at 6. But Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much, Vanessa. This has been... Fantastic. I'm not yeah. sure. It really yeah, is. I don't know if I talked about what I was supposed no. to talk about. We just, like, no, we're just like having cool. a conversation. It's really like holistic perspective of you personally, also the work that you're doing and the observations that you've made since Bef- then. Before you go, do you want to shout out any uh, any uh, women, black women scholars or any scholars, any women scholars that uh, 
influence you, formally, formal scholars or informal scholars especially, um, that have influenced you uh, through their work now, contemporarily, or historically, or anybody you want, any women you want to shout out, really? Sure, yes. Yeah. Um, I should first, have asked you this ahead of time, sorry. And if you have any more, we can add to the, to yeah. the link. So yeah, later. we'll put information on yeah. the description. Okay. Um, yes, I definitely want to shout out Patricia de Santana Pinho. Um, she's brilliant. If you have not read her book, Mama Africa, you have to. It's a, it's an amazing, amazing book. I refer to it all the time. Um, and also, I think that, because I, I mean, of course, I want to shout out like Keisha Perry, Kristen Smith, like Erica Lorraine Williams. But I really, really, and Kim Butler and like other women as well. Um, but I really want to shout out Patricia Santana Pino because I feel like a lot of times, especially Americans, they don't read the work of Brazilian scholars when researching Brazil. Mm -hmm. And that was what João made me realize is like, we already have this idea. We come here, we read our literature, our US uh, Anglo literature. Right. And then we also think that we're experts on the matter. But there's so many Brazilian scholars who first of all, like experience and have different perspectives on these same, um, you know, uh, realities, mm -hmm. and also are writing amazing, brilliant scholarship. Um, so just like continuing that hegemonic relationship where we're the outside foreign scholar and we're like replicating that power dynamic, I think is something we need to be more aware of. And we need to engage with the current scholarship that's happening, particularly in your research site. Um, so anyways, that was like a long justification. No, I'm so glad you mentioned it. <laughs> well, I got a couple. I got a couple of uh, grants to continue my my research um, in Salvador. So let's just talk quickly about summer plans. I mean, all those things are great and they're on my mind. But I'd be lying if I said the number one top thing on my mind is just getting back to my family. And I can. Uh, my most immediate plans are to. Uh, spend time with my son i got a lot of games and <laughs> gadgets and books and mm -hmm. and beach toys and i'm excited about us going to swim class so we're just gonna be just chilling like hard um although it's raining there now and then yes yeah, it? oh man i think until like what our fall i guess okay um uh so that's kind of like how we you know, spending my summer, I'm, I, I need to decompress because this year was maddening. Um, but, um, Mason, you'll be there. So we'll pick up our, um, definitely be picking up our podcasting there. And there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of political work to be done. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as well on a very serious note and I'll get my marching orders when I get there but um, we'll have a lot to talk about um, for our fifth podcast but the listeners should look forward to us being um, picking up picking reuniting up this podcast work yeah and reuniting in Brazil in Brazil in Salvador probably um, so what what are your plans for the summer all right well I will be home for a month trying to save up money for Brazil itself there is a, um, a program at Tulane um, through which we will spend about six months in Sao Paulo uh, for a language program so just to get a little more Portuguese under my belt and then six I'll weeks six weeks oh, okay. yeah what did I say months six months oh geez I got a little interrupted someone came through the door <laughs> I wish six months study abroad experience um and then after that, I'll spend about three weeks collecting data and, um, I don't know, archival research or interviews, but essentially my research topic for my master's will be affirmative action, kind of looking at the tensions, challenges of um, implementing this policy and really understanding racial, ethnic equality and identity, but if anyone has any, so smart. not at all. We'll it's see so what we'll, we'll see what comes of it. But <laughs> I'm excited, and I'm excited to, to take our work um, on the, that transnational trip yeah, <laughs> to absolutely. to Bahia. And um, it's been a blast working with this old fellow next to me. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I learned a lot. I learned a lot with an old man. <laughs> um, we, um, you know, we just want to emphasize that uh, it's a long-term project that we have in mind so we want to thank folks for sticking with us as we sort of learn our learn you know our way around this format mm -hmm. um definitely learn how to make the podcast a little bit shorter <laughs> and, um, very much so <laughs> and if you guys have any s suggestions or have any topics particularly that you would like us to address or you you your own work that you'd like us to um you know post on our yeah, on our page um we are, as we said, this is a production of knowledge for black women, but we're hoping to take it through different Afro lenses, Afro-diasporic lenses. Definitely. Um, well, yeah, that, that'll be a good thing to sort of hear about what, um, what our, our black diasporic lens people want to hear about next. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a variety of different um, points of view um, across the African diaspora that we can focus on, um, but after Brazil, we are definitely uh, interested in knowing what folks would like to hear. And if you also, if you want to get in touch with any of our guests uh, right. or any of us, please just check the links on our site and mm -hmm. make sure you add us on our Instagram site because uh, you'll get a chance to see what it is that we're seeing and what it is that we're up to uh, in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, a lot of our works is, isn't set in a box. It's very much... Um, molding to what's going on around us and, you know, the political climate as well as, you know, Brazil's going to have its presidential election come October and oh, yeah. we'll still be hitting on um, topics of related to Brazil uh, this summer. So keep up to speed with, with our episodes and we're grateful for you all to, to be listening and, and thank you to our um, interviewees who have taken the time as well to, to talk with us and um, yeah, it's... Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I want just uh, the la very last thing I want to remind folks to uh, search for the hashtag site black women, uh, mm -hmm. whatever social media platform that you use and uh, continue to support um, that cause, which was one of the main catalysts for us doing this uh, 
doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Have a great summer. Obrigada. Carta marcada, calada, incansada, tão sabotada, pintadinha, te amada nessa cidade secada de dor, completa da pele, história que se sabe de cor. Quem desconhece, olha estranho e ainda sente dó. Eu tô cansada desse papo de quem sente dó. No fim das contas percebemos que ainda estamos só. Mas eu espero que essa força vem da união e que a tigresa possa mais que a porra do leão. Preta, pinta o mundo com seu tom que essa tua negra Areia, trilha ilumina e guia o meu caminhar alumeia um pouquinho esse meu caminho me deu uma luz é difícil chegar quanto mais eu ando mais escuro fica me deu uma dica pra poder seguir não sei o que faço se ando se paro se corro se sigo se fico aqui tome minha boca pra que eu só fale aquilo que eu deveria dizer tome a caneta folha o lápis agora que eu comecei a escrever que eu nunca me calho o jogo só vale quando todas as partes puderem jogar sou mina sou preta essa é minha treta me deram Mike e eu vou cantar canto pela tia que é silenciada dizem que só apiar é seu lugar canto pela mina que é de quebrada que é violentada e não pode estudar canto pela preta objetificada gostosa sarada que tem que sambar dona de casa limpa lá e passa mas fora do lar não pode trabalhar Preta, seu tom que essa tua negra tinta fará brotar a cor nessa cidade cinza que tanto te negou, mas oh preta pinta preta pinta o mundo com seu tom que essa tua negra tinta fará brotar a cor nessa cidade cinza que tanto te negou mas o preta pinta Eu atrasei, se mil desculpas inventei, o trânsito estava em febre.